Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, without any fiddling and deviling. They call us the good guys. I don't know why, because we're not really that good. Well, we think we're good, but actually we're just kind of mediocre. My name is Morgan Freeman, and I'd like to welcome you to the Gary Lovett and Friends podcast. That's Gary and his brother Keith. By the way, why doesn't Keith get top billing? Growing up as one of four brothers who all played sports, including baseball, basketball, football, and track, we all competed at a very high level while supporting the other's path whether or not we followed in their footsteps. The early days of baseball, football, and basketball had us looking up to try and mimic the greatest players of all time. Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, Carl Yastrzemski, and so many more. In football, it was Bart Starr, Johnny Unitas, Roger Staubach, Terry Bradshaw, and more. And for basketball, it was Bill Russell, John Havlicek, Sam Jones, and Jerry West. We would all try to emulate our heroes. And as the years went on, and some players retired while the new ones came upon the scene, it was a rite of passage to adopt a new favorite. In 1971, this all changed for me. It was my indoctrination to my all-time favorite athlete. He was a skinny black teenager who had a big afro that seemed to get bigger as he flew through the air. He did things with a basketball like no other that I had seen. It was a ballet, an airport runway, incredible art, and athleticism all rolled into one. His hands were gigantic, and it almost seemed like the red, white, and blue basketball would disappear while he was in flight. He'd float, twist, turn, elevate even higher and higher, and even higher. He would go over defenders that were a half foot taller than him with such ease. Then he would dunk it with authority and finishing it with a perfect landing like an Olympic gold medal gymnast. That athlete is Dr. J. Julius Irving. Number six from the University of Massachusetts, the captain of the 76ers, Julius the Dr. Irving. And there he is, the doctor, Julius Irving. <laughs> Boy, that brings back memories, fond memories, absolutely. Wow, we have my all-time favorite basketball player, the one and only Dr. J, here this morning on Gary Lovett and Friends. This is like the coolest moment in my career. It truly is in my life to get to talk to my all-time favorite basketball player, my all-time favorite athlete, and my all-time favorite celebrity. Wow, this is so good. Well, it's, you know, 
it's nice to it's nice to wear those hats, um, athlete, celebrity, um, you know. But you know, those those are just. I don't mean to minimize it, but I'm, I'm like a former athlete. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and as far as celebrity concerned, yeah, I still have some sports celebrity uh, status, but you know that's that's not the reason I wake up in the morning. And, and think in terms of, you know, how how the world thinks about me. Maybe there was a time that I was maybe more concerned about it and, uh, you know, felt like, you know, it was an obligation uh, to go out and, you know, do something superhuman. But now, you know, at this, this stage in the game, this, this age in life or whatever, I'm, I'm happy and appreciative of the things that have happened and that I have a platform and that I, you know, have uh, some shoulders to stand on who, uh, who, you know, who really help guide and, and direct me uh, over the years. And then I try to, I tried to be that to others. I try to be an inspiration to others. And uh, it, it makes me feel good to do that. Well, you're celebrating a birthday on Monday. You're going to be 71 years of age. Mm-hmm. And that's correct. The word is that you can still dunk. <laughs> well, I haven't been incentivized to go out and dunk a basketball. <laughs> <laughs> so the last time I was incentivized, I was I was sixty three, and then it was like, what happened to those eight years? Attempted <laughs> 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 a dunk in the last in the last eight years, and unfortunately, you know, I I sucked the fall in May, and I tore my rotator cuff. Ugh. So I, I didn't have surgery on it till September. So I'm still in the healing process. And now it's just kind of very difficult to raise my right arm above my head and extend it. Very, very difficult and very, very annoying. You know, I'm not going to say the pain is still there, but it is annoying. So, so we're going we're gonna to scratch dumps off the list for a while. Just a little while, just a little while. Folks, we are speaking with Julia Serving, the great Dr. J., my introduction to you, Dr. J, was back in the early 70s. My family split its time between Peabody, Massachusetts, and Portland, Maine. Now, here's why I got to see the doctor. Here in Boston, we would see the Celtics, the old brown basketball, the old come down, set it up. and It was good basketball, but it wasn't exciting basketball. And then when we'd go back to visit our friends in Maine, where we had come from, we'd see the red, white, and blue, the flashy basketball with the likes of Artis Gilmore, George McGinnis, George Gervin, the list goes on and on. And, of course, this guy with this big old afro that's flying through the air doing things that I had never seen anybody else ever do. Now, here's the deal, though. I had three brothers. I still do. There's four of us, and we all had our favorites. And I said, guys, this is player. His name is Julius Irving, Dr. J. He does things that no one else can do. He plays above the rim, and he has the basketball in his hand. It's a red, white, and blue basketball, and it magically disappears, and then it comes back, and he's dunking it through the hoop with ease, with ease, and yet it's like a perfect 10 for a gymnast when you would land. Yeah. <laughs> the landings were very significant, yeah. Let me tell you, you don't, you don't jump, you don't soar, you don't look good doing it if you don't make a good landing. So, so. So, I 
it was funny. I can I can take you back to, you know, days when I was preteen, and you know, I used to get on swings, and swing as high as I can swing, and then jump out, and try to make that perfect landing. And I get on the seesaw. You know, when you're going up, down, up, down, you go up in the air and you jump off the back and land. You know, feet first, hopefully, instead of head first. <laughs> just, just, just do things around my housing project where I, where I grew up in the playgrounds that really helped me with the landings. And I thought about it later in life, and I was like, man, I've seen some crash landings of guys going in to dunk the basketball. Sean Kemp comes to mind. <laughs> he just goes in there and throws down an animal like dunk and you know, ends up landing on his heel or whatever and falling into the stands. And, and uh, you know what I'm saying? The landings are, the landings are pivotal, pivotal for anything that flies. Well, you know, if, if you're doing the playground thing and then you transfer that over to the basketball court, the thing I'm trying to figure out here, Doc, is how are you doing it with the canvas cons? That couldn't be easy on your ankles. Hey, if it's all you know, then it's, it's what goes with the territory. I mean, that, you know, those shoes, and I, I used to wear my shoes, rain, snow, sleet, or hail. I mean, you know, sometimes, I mean, obviously, you know, you put a pair of galoshes over your, over, your, over your shoe, but many times you're caught out there, particularly growing up in the Northeast, because I grew up in Long Island, or whatever, snowstorm would come in, and you still got to go out and shovel, or you got to deliver your newspapers, or, you know, whatever it was you know, that you did, you know, you do that either in your shoes, your boots, or your sneakers. And many times I, I did it in my sneakers. So it was what I had and what I had to work with. And uh, so I didn't have any illusion of, you know, making my, my feet more comfortable other than, you know, wearing additional socks. So sometimes, you know, you might see three or four pairs of socks on. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, would, that would keep you dry for a while. I bet it would. And a little more cushion, too, then, right? And a little more cushion. And a little more cushion, yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, I have to tell you this, Doc, that uh, all this week I've been wearing all my Dr. J stuff. I had the Roosevelt High School jersey that you wore. I had that laid out this morning. I also have, uh, as we're presently talking, I have my Julia Serving New York Net number 32 jersey, which is really, really cool. I've got a Virginia Squire warm-up jersey of yours. Seventy-six is stuff galore. It's like it's incredible what you've done to inspire me as far as being an athlete. But I'd like to go back, if you don't mind, to the days where you were at Roosevelt High School. Were you a phenom right away, or was this something in the making? Well, you know my my high school career was very interesting because. Uh, I, I would have to say that the uh, three coaches that I had freshman year was uh, Earl Mosley, sophomore year was Chuck McElwain, and then my junior senior years on the varsity it was Ray Wilson. So I, I think they all saw something in me because uh, after our freshman season was over, you know I was elevated to the JV squad. And then the JV squad season was over and I was elevated to the varsity as a ninth grader. So I actually got in a couple of games, scored a couple of points, and 
then the next year I came back as a sophomore and I was on the JV squad. And I was kind of was the leader of the JV squad. And then when the season ended, I got moved up to the varsity. So I had varsity experience as a freshman and, and a sophomore. But it was a matter of, you know, being brought along slowly. And then my junior year, you know, I made the varsity and I wasn't a starter until like mid-season. And in mid-season, you know, I got inserted into the starting lineup, and you know, there was no looking back at that point. Um, so, I, so I think it was it was gradual. You know, when I when I graduated high school, I was pushing six foot four, and uh, about you know one seventy five. That's kind of so thin. I got, <laughs> I got to UMass. I grew three inches. You know, six four, six five, six six. I got to six six. And I got to about 195. And, you know, suddenly, I mean, I, I was almost a different person than I was graduating out of high school. But the flame was there, and uh, and it burned mightily. And even in the, in the pros, there was a progression. And, and I, and I like that. So I, I like, I kind of liked, you know, being a late bloomer because you don't get a chance to take anything for granted. And uh, you just don't, you just don't assume uh, anything. You just go out and you work hard and you keep working and you look at the results and you start saying, ah, now it's time to do more work. Now, you get to the University of Massachusetts after Roosevelt High School and you're dominating the scene. Guys that are in Boston as well as the rest of the country are starting to hear more and more about this guy that they called Dr. J. Now, I know the story on how you got the name, but I'd love you to tell it for people out there because there's all kinds of nicknames out there, one of which, uh, one of my favorites is Chocolate Thunder, Daryl Dawkins. But for all-time nicknames, to me, Dr. J is the best. So go ahead and tell our listeners if you wouldn't mind. It's it's a cool nickname, you know, uh, probably in middle school. I had a buddy. And his name is Leon Saunders. And we, we actually both went to UMass together. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he, he called me the doctor and I call him the professor. Professional style being nicknames. And he, I, I call him professor because he was so argumentative that he would always, our conversations would turn into debates. And, and he always had to win. <laughs> and, uh, and he called me the doctor. Because he said, if I'm a professor, then you're the doctor. Because you know, you you you're the most professional guy I know, and you operate on patients all the time on the basketball court. And uh, you know, so uh, so we we had fun with that, and we ended up graduating high school. We, we went to college together, and then when I got out of college, when I left school and joined the Virginia Squires, you know, there was Dr. Mason, there was Dr. Jones, and there was there was all these professional doctors who people just call doc. So the trainer started calling me, well, you're going to be Dr. J. <laughs> and the Dr. J thing really caught on. They started promoting me and Charlie Scott as Charlie the Great Scott and Julius Dr. J. Irving throughout Virginia. And those two years in Virginia, that's, that's where the nickname uh, really, really grew. And uh, and then when I played in the Rucker League, uh, the first year out of college that summer, 
the guy or oh, the announcer on the side, he started giving me all kinds of nicknames. He, had, he was calling me the Claw. He was calling me Black Moses. And I would hear him say things after I scored a basket. I was like, is this guy talking about me? <laughs> you know? And as it turned out, he was talking about me. And I went over and I said, you know, if you're going to call me anything outside of my name, Julius Irving, then just call me the doctor. And, you know, he picked up on it. And then that, that spread throughout New York and Harlem and, you know, through summer league basketball. And, you know, that was, that was, that was pretty cool. Cause I didn't, I didn't really care for those other nicknames. No, no, I, I knew of some of those other nicknames, but now you played at Rocket, which is the, like the greatest playground basketball of, of all time. I've seen the pictures. There were thousands of people. They were on top of buildings. They were on the freeways that were right near that court. They were in the trees. They were just all over the place there to watch you play basketball. Now, does that happen before you get to the ABA or after you get to the ABA? Well, I was signed. I, I signed with the ABA uh, after the after my junior season. And so I became a pro because it's a pro league. So it's only pros playing in the league. So I was I was already a pro, but I hadn't gone to camp yet. And then I played that first summer. I played for five years in, in, the, in the Rucker League. But before going to my first training camp, uh, I played a season of summer league basketball in the, in the Rucker. And then when I went to training camp, you know, I mean, it was, it was a heightened experience from what I had had, had in college because I was playing against pros. And, you know, I needed to prove myself. Who were some of the great players that were down there in Rucker while you were playing early on? Uh, there were a few guys from the Knicks, Clyde Frazier and, and Willis Reed, you know, uh, played over there. Uh, uh, John Stallworth, uh, Hawthorne Wingo, uh, Earl Monroe. Uh, he was with the uh, Baltimore Bullets at, at that time. Uh, you know, Wilt would make an occasional appearance on a Sunday. <laughs> wow. And the great Wilt Chamberlain, Tiny Archibald. Uh, was a fixture there, and uh, you know that's the. I mean, he grew up admiring the Rucker, and you know he was a pro uh, at Kansas City, I think, at the time. Whatever Charlie Scott, uh, who played on my team, uh, the guys from the Nets, uh, Billy Paltz was with the Nets, and and uh, and then Georgie Bruns and Ollie Taylor, you know, high flying slam dunking Ollie Taylor from Houston. Yep. So there were a lot of guys. There were a lot of guys. Walt Serbiak, um, you know, played over here. Wally Serbiak is his son. Or whatever, I have to give them shout-outs because they were on my team. And Peter Vesey uh, actually coached our team uh, and was a player coach. So every now and then we get a big lead. We put, he, he, he put himself in the game. He get a kick out of that. But he could play a little bit. He could play. Well, okay, so Virginia Squires, you get Charlie Scott, and I know uh, a lot of facts and figures behind your career and such, but you you get drafted by Virginia, but there's a, a little bit of controversy because it's the Squires, it's the Atlanta Hawks, and the Milwaukee Bucks, they're all vying to get Julius Irving, so maybe you can kind of go back and recount of some of the things that took place during that time. Well, after my first year in Virginia, you know, the, the ABA was a question mark whether the ABA was going to make it or not. You know, when I signed, the agent involved, a guy named Steve Arnold, he said, you know, this is 
you're just going to be doing this for two years because within two years, you know, we're presently working on a merger and it's just going to be one league after two years. So this was in 1971. And after the first year, the ABA was pretty much on shaky ground. And I had a very aggressive agent named Irwin Wiener. So he said, we're going to go down to Atlanta and we're going to talk to them. So we go down to Atlanta and Pete Maravich is playing for the Atlanta Hawks. Lou Hudson is playing for the Atlanta Hawks. Walt Bellamy is playing for the Atlanta Hawks. So they got three Hall of Famers on their team already. And we actually work out a deal for the, at the expiration of my contract with Virginia, which was a four-year contract, that I would go to the Atlanta Hawks. And, you know, instead of supposed to become a free agent, so on and so forth, just go, go to the Atlanta Hawks. And they were willing to monetize the deal at the time. And, you know, ABA money was kind of tight. <laughs> I got I got a ten thousand dollar advance when I signed with the uh, with the Squires, and here the Hawks, you know, were gonna give me uh, two hundred fifty thousand. Wow! <laughs> Put in the bank for this future contract. And <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like a good deal. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, uh, so summer summer comes. And as it turned out, the the NBA draft comes in June, and uh, the Milwaukee Bucks draft me because now my college class is graduated, graduated in '72, right? So the Milwaukee Bucks draft me, and the Hawks said, "Well, you, you can't draft him. We we have a contract on this guy," and it goes to mediation, arbitration, whatever it was in New York and they rule against the Hawks and in favor of, of the Bucks. So now it's a little bit of a standoff between those two franchises. And you know, Virginia at this time, you know, still I'm still on the contract to Virginia. So my agent advised me, well, let's just go to camp in Atlanta and see how this thing's gonna work out. So I go to camp in Atlanta, and I'm playing with Pete and uh, Bellamy and, and uh, Lou Hudson. And, you know, we play a couple of exhibition games <laughs> against the NBA. We played Houston twice. And, you know, we beat them. I mean, we were, we were scoring like 150, 160 points. It was just... Oh, my gosh. 150, 160 points. So you guys were unstoppable. Yeah, it was like, a you know, just a playground fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> And telling me down boards and Lou Hudson could shoot from anywhere, and I was doing my thing. So, uh, as it turned out, they shut us down, and the NBA said, "You know, you got an illegal player, an eligible player. If he's supposed to be, he's going to play in the NBA. He's got to play with Milwaukee." And at that time, I went back to Virginia, and you know, went to Virginia for another year. And they made a deal, and then I ended up with New York with the Nets for three years, and that led to the to the Sixers for eleven years. So I had a I had an interesting career. I mean, I and you know I feel like uh, that helped to make me more unique. 
you know, the fact that it wasn't just over one team and, you know, stay there for 16 years, that, you know, that first five years was ABA years, and it was very special. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And then the next, you know, seven years, it was chasing the title. And we played for the title, you know, four times in seven years. And then there was the, the swan song, you know, at, at, the end of, at the end of the day, you know, the last three years, you know, it was just a matter of trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And, you know, it wasn't going to be playing basketball. We knew that because, you know, basketball runs its course. It used to back in the day. Now, now guys can play their forty, probably to their forty-five. I think LeBron might be out there to his forty-five. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's a twenty-four-seven, three hundred sixty-five-day job, and you just got to keep yourself ready to go out there and play. Whereas, you know, in my younger life, there was there was other things we had to think about and do, and you know, basketball was one of them, and not but not everything. Yeah, because, of course, the, the pay that you're getting back in the early 70s all the way to probably the mid-70s mid or thereabouts, not quite on par of what the money is today in the NBA, for sure. Uh, you know, I started getting really big in the 90s. And I, my last year was 87. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was over a million in 87, but it started really escalating in the 90s and, you know, uh, I think Michael's contract and the retro contract that they had to sign him to for the years when he was underpaid, you know, that, that was the big breakthrough. Well, you know, you go from the Squires, as you had mentioned, and you go there to the New York Nets. That, and the Nets, that is where you are really on the map. Prior to then, you were definitely on the radar. And obviously, the people that know basketball knew of you down there at Rutgers, which is pretty much the proving point at any level. And then you get to New York with the Nets, and you play on a team that very well could have beaten any NBA team at that time that you were there. Well, we we really had great teams with the with the Nets, and and uh, we won the two ABA championships. And um, I, you know, it was it was almost like two different teams because you know the first team, John Williamson was a rookie. Brian Taylor was a second-year man. And, um, you know, up front, we had me and Larry Keenan and, and uh, Billy Paltz. Uh, so, and then our, so, our, so our second team was, was very important, you know, to fill in the gaps. And Kevin Lockery was a, a magician of a coach. I mean, he, he, did, he was so good and had such a good feel or, you know, what it takes to, to win and, and be successful. And then, you know, the next year we get knocked out of the playoffs by St. Louis, and we end up making some changes, and we get Wendell Ladner and Mike Gale, and then we get Jimmy Akins uh, from Virginia, Paul goes to San Antonio, Keenan goes to San Antonio. So we get Tim Bassett and uh, we get Rich Jones, I, mean, I got I got two guys right there, man. If I was gonna be in a foxhole in a battle, I want those two guys <laughs> there with me. Still got me. Still got Super John. Well, um, and 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 still got Locker, you know, as a coach. So so that that team was was a different team, and it had a different makeup. Uh, uh, Willie Soldier was on that first team too, but. Uh, 
you know, so the ABA for us was was a great challenge, and and the biggest challenge in my ABA career was was the Denver Nuggets, and you know, they're still a great franchise, and uh, you know, even though they haven't won an NBA title yet, and they didn't win any NBA titles, they were always like a team who who was in the way, a team who we had to had to go through in that regular season. We played twelve times, and I think they seven or eight times during the regular season. Um, and then in the playoffs, uh, you know, I opened up the playoffs with two games that I will always remember because the first game I scored 45 points and the second game I scored 48. And we split. You know, we won one and we lost one. But that set the tone uh, for the playoffs. And this was a team that had David Thompson on it and Dan Fuku Hall of Famer. And uh, Ralph Sampson, who Ralph Simpson, who was a great player, he was like a second coming of Oscar Robertson. And um, you know, it was just it was just such a special uh, memory and such an accomplishment uh, to get by them and beat them in six games. You know, for the last the last ABA championship. Well, you know what I was going to say for that net team against the Nuggets in that championship series during the uh, season itself, the all-star break, it's the rest of the ABA of what was left of the rest of the ABA going against the Nuggets in the all-star game. So you got the very best players, including yourself and Artis and company playing against David Thompson, Dan Issel. Yeah, that, that ABA all-star, uh, game, and that was the first slam dunk contest. I mean, there were a lot of things that were uh, associated with that that last ABA All-Star game. And uh, that made it special, too, this um, fact that it still lives on today. You know, you can still see clips and you can still see uh, highlights and lowlights. <laughs> Yes, they do, which is the greatest thing in sports history, watching you fly through the air from the foul line with the big afro. This is like going in the wind, and I think that your afro definitely rivaled Darnell Hillman's. There's no doubt about it, but just flying through the air, I can remember it like it was yesterday, and then I've seen it a million times since. Yeah, real, real, real memories, and, you know, we we probably since we only got a couple of minutes left, we probably could talk about dropping dimes and what's going on as far as uh, you know the ABA players' pension, you know, being a conversation going on uh, between the representatives from the ABA, uh, Scott Todd, and uh, and the commissioner's office, and and you know, last I heard. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of optimism that uh, that something something really good was going to happen, and I and I'm, I try to be an optimistic person in life, and I feel like uh, you know this is just an eventuality. It's a matter of ironing out the wrinkles and and then getting it done. So. Uh, I, I, uh, I made a decision to go on the advisory board from Dropping Dimes Foundation and join a lot of other people. Uh, Dan is from Nick Barron, you know, Gilmore, Spencer Haywood, and 
by George McGinnis. That's it's uh, hopefully this all comes through for these guys. Yeah, yeah so many guys who, who were part of the ABA, and, and yeah, I think the ABA deserves to to be kept alive in people's hearts and minds uh, because it has made the ABA make such a great contribution. Yeah, without the ABA, without the ABA, the NBA isn't what it is today, and that is for sure. Hey, I. If I could do this in 60 seconds, and I promise it won't go over, it's beat the buzzer. I wanted to rattle off a whole bunch of questions, and you can do a one-word an- one answer if you'd like. The greatest player that you ever played against? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The greatest player you ever played against in the ABA? Artis Gilmore. Okay. Who's the best dunker of all time? Uh, Dominique Wilkins. How about in a game? <laughs> Sean Kent. Okay. And if Dr. J gets to do the dunks he wanted to in the ABA contest, the very first dunk contest, because you were limited on what they let you do, does he have more dunks in his repertoire than anybody else? Uh, there are a lot of dunks, uh, yes, just for yes. 1983, Philadelphia 76ers. Are they the greatest team in NBA history? They are. And uh, until somebody goes undefeated, 12-1 is the best playoff record. Of all time. Agreed. The team of Otis Gilmore, Julia Serving, George McGinnis, Moses Malone, David Thompson, and George Gervin from that one era in the ABA, do they beat any other team from any other era, whether it's ABA or NBA? They, they do not beat my all-time team that I decided when I was 15, but they beat everybody else. And that all-time team was Russell, Chamberlain, Baylor, Jerry West, and Oscar Robertson. And if you could do me a huge favor, if, if you don't mind, as we say goodbye here, because this has been incredible, speaking with, my opinion, the greatest basketball player of all time, as I said before many a time, that he was the ABA and he revitalized the NBA. But could you say hi to my brother Keith, who's, who's down and out with COVID? Keith, hey man, I hope you can get through this thing. I have a few friends who been hit by COVID. They've gotten through. So when you do, uh, I'd love to, uh, you know, say hi, say hi to you now, and you know, maybe uh, hang out with you and your brother in the future. So good luck to you. God bless, and stay safe. That's awesome. And Doc, you did meet Keith back in the late '90s when it was you, JoJo White, my brother Keith, and me, and a holding room at the Boston Garden when it was 50 years of the NBA, and it was just the four of us in that room talking basketball. Amazing. It really is, because my brother Keith's all-time favorite player was Jojo White, and of course, you know who my favorite player was. I love Thank you very much for coming on with us and Dropping Dimes Foundation, folks. The doc's all about it. We wish you the best of luck, and I know that I'm invited to do a foursome of golf with you, Artis Gilmore, and my son this summer, so we're looking forward to seeing you. It's all good. Take care, brother. All right, Doc. Bye-bye. Producer Dave here from pod617.com. A reminder to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts. Wherever you find it, you can always go to pod617.com for the full library of this show. In pod, we trust.